Case Study Friday is, you are called to a 66-year-old male patient who has collapsed at a restaurant. CPR was immediately started, and when you arrived six minutes after CPR, um, the or after collapse, the patient had a carotid pulse, but was still GCS 3-4. You started getting organized, getting and got the ECG rhythm below, as well as the following vitals. Uh, skin was pale, level of consciousness was unconscious, eyes were sluggish, at four mils, respiratory rate was six beats per minute. Uh, pulse was, or respiratory rate was six breaths per minute. Pulse 26 beats per minute. Temperature was normal. BGL was normal. BP was 62 on 30, um, and SpO2 was 65%. So you start providing ventilations when your partner tells you he can't feel a pulse anymore. That's about six minutes after you guys arrive, and you start compressions again. Okay, so looking at this ECG, and I'm, I'm sure you have it in front of you right now, and so a lot of people were talking about this being a sine wave, and I see, we were just talking about this prior to going live, we see what you're seeing, but this wasn't the actual intention of this, uh, of this ECG, this ECG was uh, an idioventricular rhythm, and, and it's an idioventricular rhythm based on uh, YQRS as well and lead to as well as being a very low rate like between 20 and 30 um, and anything under 40 would be considered ventricular anything over that is accelerated yep. right so that was the intention so we had a lot of discussion about this being maybe a hyper k patient which i don't discredit you guys for thinking that it's an excellent train of thought but it wasn't the intention of this but we were talking about why do you want to pull up your um, your examples there kevin and kind yeah. of talk about your what you're seeing there and what the difference between them is so we can kind of distinguish yeah absolutely so i've actually got um let's see sure there let's see if it comes up Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, so I've actually got, this is our, our EKG that you posted for the case study. Yeah. And there are some things on here that I like that people are kind of seeing that are that sine wave. So looking down here at two, um, right here, we kind of see P waves, mm. but I don't think those actually are P waves. I think that's just that kind of wandering baseline right there. Could be, yeah. So, and that's, that's what I what's, think. What's your thought on that? Well, if you look at whenever you have an, a, a description or when you're concerned about if you see P waves or not, the best thing you can do is look at another um, look at another strip and mm -hmm. look at another uh, angle of the heart itself. So if you look at even lead two, it's you can see the kind of the lateral side or sorry, not the lateral side. But if you're looking there, you can see that there's some correlation, but it's really difficult to really say that's a P wave right there. Right. And it's um, yeah. Even I though there's the say, bump in two, it kind of, that looks like P wave ish. Like you look at three, and that bump doesn't look at all like a P wave. Just no. like general appearance, it just doesn't look like one. Yeah, and so that would be my biggest advice here when you're looking at like, oh, is that a P wave? Is this sine wave? And then I would get, start looking at other sides. Now, obviously, you'd be doing other uh, four leads. But remember, this guy went back into cardiac arrest, and so you're gonna have. Um, you potentially could have this same idioventricular rhythm in PEA. Mm -hmm. But the, the reality is that when we got this, before he went back into cardiac arrest, I would say that um, it doesn't look like it potentially could be sine wave and hyper K. Yes. Um, is it complete 100% guaranteed? I have to say no. I don't think that that is a for sure bet on this EC. No, I wouldn't say this is a classic. And actually, I've got a couple more. Here, let me swipe over for hyper K. 
right. So here's that kind of classic sine wave sign that we always talk about and look at. This is what's, you know, in the, in the books. And we all know that in the books isn't always what we see in the street, sure. but um, yeah, just so that everybody knows what we're talking about when we're talking about the sine wave, we'll bump over to just some basic hyperkalemia EKGs mm -hmm. uh, without even getting truly into the sine wave on this. The biggest thing, if we look over at lead two on the left that we were kind of talking about earlier is this upward slur that's really early. It's always going to oh, be really yeah. early on a, on a hyperkalemia. Yes, we've got the, the peaked T's that we kind of see all over the place, but the upward slur on that T wave is usually pretty early, whereas on a ventricular rhythm, it'll usually be a lot later. Can you go back to the, uh, the original ECG so we can see the difference? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, we can so see right here. So the T wave, uh, if you look at three to kind of define where that T wave begins, I like, to, I like the rhythm strip on the bottom because it's really good to be able to like compare it to other rhythms or other leads that are directly above it. Mm -hmm. So you look kind of here and here. That's kind of the width of that T wave. And we can yeah. see that right here, like super late into that, um, that T wave is where the peak of it is. And it's kind of yeah. got like a, a lazy slur into it. Yeah, which is a lot different than what you saw with that uh, that hyper K patient. So there, there's right. definitely some subtleties in that um, and and seeing it because very different. Because look at how upright that T wave is immediately after the QRS. Oh yeah, and it's it's almost got a. a whoops, uh, I I when I was taught this, I was taught the reverse ski jump. I don't mm. know why, but it kind of makes sense. You got this upward. And then this kind of, it almost looks like a ski jump, I guess. We're in Colorado, so we talk about skiing a lot. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you can kind of see that in pretty much all the leads. You look over at V6, you look at V5, V4, they all have in that hyper K, that kind of reverse ski jump look to it. Yeah, so, yeah. And then the other thing we were talking about earlier was looking for P waves. Uh, I really like that people were looking for P waves in the, the original EKG. And mm -hmm. usually, wow. Oh, for some reason, my pen is just really angry. There we go. Usually, like we were saying earlier, you'll see P waves uh, when you've got this kind of sine wavy appearance and this hyper K appearance. And eventually, degrade the PRI too. What's that? It looks like a wide PRI too, or at least yeah. people are close. Yeah, which makes sense given the hyper K. You would see a, a longer time it takes you to get from, you know, the SA node to, uh, to the AV node. So I think that's definitely, um, something to take in consideration as well. The, the P waves in the original ECG are actually, uh, if you were to say that they're P waves are actually, uh, quite, uh, quite close to the QRS, which would be yeah. very unusual, uh, for a, uh, for a hyper K patient. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, I know that this is a paced rhythm and this might throw some people off, but this, uh, regardless, it's a ventricular rhythm, regardless of where it's being initiated. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking for a sine wave in a paced rhythm, it's going to be the same as if it's a ventricular escape rhythm or an idioventricular rhythm. It's going to look almost identical. And like looking at this, this is very different in appearance and it's got that true genuine like sine wave appearance whereas yeah. i don't think that ours does yeah it's very abrupt like if you, if you go back like that's very kind of like looped as opposed to ours which looks more yeah. uh more ventricular to me yep i agree yeah. either way just, 
I don't not I'm not discrediting you saying that a sine wave can't look like that. Um, but that wasn't the intention of the ECG of the case. But that's right. why we do these, right? Is that so that way you can learn these little subtleties and and kind of use them within your diagnosis um, and going forward. Because obviously, if this is a hyper K patient, then we we have things we can do to treat it. But that okay. um, it and it you wouldn't be wrong to maybe treat this when you look at that ECG immediately and you've got a guy that's in cardiac arrest that's suddenly collapsed and you're going, okay, what could possibly be going on here? Thinking the H's right. and T's, you go, well, you know what? Given that rhythm, we could be looking at a, a sine wave or a hyper-K patient. And, mm -hmm. But that's not the only thing that does idioventricular rhythms. Even reperfusion rhythms can create an idioventricular rhythm, right? And right. so coming just out of cardiac arrest, it's not unusual uh, to see an idioventricular rhythm uh, right immediately after cardiac arrest when you re start reperfusing that yeah. heart. So. And if you, let's say you do see this rhythm in a, you know, post-cardiac arrest, go talk to somebody, ask them, hey, do they have a history of acute kidney failure? Yeah. Um, look at their arms and look and see if they have AV shunts. Yeah. You know, if they have an AV shunt, now you've kind of got more evidence, you know, pushing you towards that. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Yeah. Cause if you're going, okay, this guy might have hyper K, Well, what are things, what is the most common hyper K patient? Uh, a missed dialysis patient that is now yep. in hyper K, right? That's the, the, by far the most common hyper K patient. Oh, absolutely. And, there's, and there is uh, definitely signs of that. Um, the only hyper K cardiac arrests I've ever ran. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to do a case like solely on that sometime this week or sorry, mm -hmm. sorry, sometime this month. And so that's, uh, that's one that we wanted to kind of just hit nip the, uh, the kind of the nip it in the butt before we kind of get carried away on that right. hyper K patient. But let's, um, let's just talk about their arrest in general. So we have a patient that went into arrest, uh, had ROSC because of the CPR that was done by rescuers that were there immediately at, uh, at collapse. But now we have a patient that six minutes later has now gone into cardiac arrest. So let's, um, let's talk about kind of in structure from ABC's kind of standpoint. Uh, when you have a patient in arrest, we talked about how, um, what we're using in order to capture that airway. Are we, are we intubating them immediately? Are we using an SGA? Are we using an OPA? What are you guys using uh, in Colorado there? Yeah, so for the first initial four minutes, we're actually not, and this is Denver Metro Protocol, um, we are not actually doing any airway at all mm -hmm. except for placing an airway adjunct, so an NPA or an OPA, and putting a non-rebreather mask on them, and that's it. Why? And at first, I was super confused about it, honestly. Yeah. Um, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, and then I did some research on it and kind of now understand it. So it has all to do with like the inner thoracic pressure. Mm. Um, so I'm actually going to go back to share screen really quick. Sure. We were talking about this the other day at work and I was explaining it to everybody and I think I've got a, a good way to describe this. Did it come across yet? There it goes. There okay. it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like this is not going to be to scale at all. Um, let's say that this is a chest and that we're compressing down on the patient's chest, right? So when we're compressing down on the patient's chest, what we're doing to the pressure in the chest, oops, excuse me, is we're actually increasing the pressure in the chest, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're compressing everything inside of there. Well, then let's say lungs are blue. We've got our lungs inside here. And when we're breathing for the patient and we're you know bagging the patient, 
we're increasing the pressure inside the lungs, which is also increasing the pressure inside of the chest, right? right? And then when we're increasing the pressure in the chest, we'll say that this right here is the heart, which we all know is not between the lungs and the chest wall. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, so when we're doing that, we're compressing basically the vessels on the outside of the chest or yeah. on the outside of the heart. And when we're doing that, we're just, we're not getting the blood return to the heart. And I've got some super mechanically uh, minded guys that I work with. And so I kind of explains to them that we always talk about priming the pump, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we kind of have to prime the pump in the heart. If we're just compressing and putting pressure on the, the vessels, we never really truly get that, that start to that coronary perfusion pressure. Right. And so for That's, us, the reason yeah. why we do that four minute delay and only passive oxygenation yeah. is so that we can hopefully add um, a little bit more blood flow to the heart by kind of decreasing the amount of pressure that we're putting into the chest initially. 100%. I mean, it, we're starting to realize when it comes to cardiac resuscitation that, you know, cardiac output is key. It's absolute king, right? If we can't right. create cardiac output, then we have no ability to resuscitate this patient. It's just a fact. And so if we are already increasing intrathoracic pressure with compressing the chest, which makes perfect sense, right? When you compress things, pressure increases inside the chest. Right. Um, and so we already are going to decrease blood return in that that moment as well. But that being said, if we start to bag this person and increase the amount of pressure that's within the lungs, especially initially, we are mm -hmm. just going to see, again, less blood return to the heart. And less blood return to the heart really decreases our preload is essentially it, right? And it's right. Uh, without preload, there, there's no cardiac output, right? And, yeah. and, so that's, and then also, yeah. if you leave the lungs flat, like by not inflating them and stuff, you leave the lungs flat on the rebound with the CPR, that rebound's creating a negative pressure situation. So it's pulling that blood to the yeah. heart and to the coronary arteries. So yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a big thing that we're going to see this passive auctionation thing is, is yeah. going to be a bigger part of, of resuscitation as we go forward for sure. And uh, we also talked about a, uh, I was talking to an RT uh, in December about this. And so we're starting to think maybe CPAP could be something that we can look at because that's uh, in theory less invasive on the interthreatic pressure, but it still has that interthreatic pressure obviously increased with CPAP, but maybe that's something that we can look out through cardiac arrest. And you had your kind of doubts on that. What were you thinking with that guy? Yeah. So I'm just concerned that uh, we don't give CPAP when we're doing, when somebody has a tension pneumothorax or something like that, because that tension pneumo is already decreasing blood return and CPAP again also increases that interthoracic pressure. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's kind of, tamponading that off so i don't know i i've heard but i actually i've heard about that too and i've also seen kind of the controversy behind it and i think it's yeah. it's interesting and it'll be interesting to see if somebody comes out with a good study on it yeah uh, that's one yeah. of them i'm a little hesitant on though we'll see I think the, the biggest concern, like you said, is the increase in interthreatic pressure, especially when we're looking at what you just drove here. The whole point of not immediately intubating or putting an SGA in is mm -hmm. that we, um, we don't want to increase interthreatic pressure, which decreases blood return to the heart. And the concern with how CPAP, CPAP is set up now is that we would be doing the same thing. And so I wonder if maybe there's a, a valve of some kind that decreases the amount of pressure that we put into lungs at the time uh, or something along those lines where we don't, yeah, I don't know. 
yeah. maybe a bi bipap ish thing. I, I don't it would know. Make more I sense probably, right? Because if with CPAP you're constantly increasing intrathoracic pressure, with bipap you're not. You're allowing for it to escape, mm -hmm. and it's not constant. So maybe something like that that's easy to put on, um, and something like that might be something in the future uh, that right. doesn't increase intrathoracic pressure, but still creates enough force or negative pressure that we're getting air into the lungs so we can perfuse those red blood cells during cpr there's lots of different things that, that we're mm -hmm. kind of considering here um there was a, a big con controversy that was actually just talked about in a critical care group that we were talking about was uh intubating or the use of sgas immediately in cardiac arrest oh yeah and uh and using kings particularly and so uh, I have my my doubts with king tubes, and we there has been studies out there that have shown that it is possible if you overinflate the king, you can actually severely decrease blood return to the head uh, because of that overinflated bulb. You actually can compress major vessels that are leading to the uh, to the brain, and uh, right. so that yeah we don't have great cardiac circulation if we if we have some user error with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what are your thoughts on that? Have you read those and kind of discussed that with people? Yeah. There? So I, I actually really, I, what's this? I think that King Airway served a purpose at the time before an eye gel. I think that the King Airway was a great airway for um, a lot of, you know, very BLS departments and maybe some rural communities and stuff like that, that being able to take something and shove it in somebody's mouth and get, you know, a, a super glottic airway was a great thing. Um, I think that it was a good natural progression from the combi tube. Yeah. But I think with the advent of the eye gel and how easy an eye gel is and how you can literally just slide it in and there's nothing to it. There's no balloon to inflate. All you need is, you know, 30 seconds to a minute for it to warm up and it'll work well. And mm -hmm. I just don't think there's a, with the, the risks and concerns of overinflation and decreasing um, cerebral perfusion pressure, I think that it's it's a no-brainer to switch over to IGELs from Kings. Yeah, and it's if you think about it, I mean, cardiac arrest being a high-stress situation, mm -hmm. and which when you have a high-stress situation like that, it increases user error. It just happens. Oh, yeah. That's the reality of it, right? And the, the, the problem with user error with a King is, is pretty high. And right. so I think, yeah, the, an eye gel makes more sense in that situation simply because the user error isn't nearly as detrimental. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, I think the switching to that makes a lot of sense. When do you guys consider putting a superglottic or maybe even intubating this patient? Is it after a certain amount of time that you guys are considering putting it in? No. So uh, it's actually really interesting and I'm actually kind of happy to see this change. Um, we recently went to, for a non-respiratory etiology. So it has to be an adult because obviously most, uh, most kids are respiratory etiology for yeah. their cardiac arrest, yeah. um, but they have to be an adult and it has to not be a respiratory etiology and we go straight to a superglottic airway. Yeah. So, so we don't even um, touch an, end, uh, an ET tube. I keep saying end tidal tube, an endotracheal <laughs> tube. Yeah. Uh, we don't even touch an endotracheal tube uh, when we place um, an airway for a cardiac arrest. And initially I was a little back and forth like, ah, they're taking away our ET tubes, you know? But then the the concept, we kind of sat on it a little bit and we're like, God, it doesn't take any effort to put it in. You don't have to stop CPR to put it in. I can have a BLS person put it in 
Um, like in, I, I can have an EMT, my partner put it in, instead of me getting focused on the airway, I can still keep that 50,000 foot view of the, the patient. Like mm -hmm. just makes a ton of sense. And yeah. so we're just, we're going straight to an eye gel after, again, after four minutes of nothing. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's kind of what I was going to ask you next. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense because really when it comes down to it, the evidence is there showing that it makes more sense to put the SGA in now. We're starting mm -hmm. to see that in non-respiratory. Obviously, we want to capture a right. strong airway in a respiratory. In this situation in particular, given the kind of the presentation we have with this patient, would you consider this would be a non-respiratory, I'm assuming? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. This would be, a, this would be a, an IGEL patient to me. Okay. And I mean, I, I do understand like if somebody's got like an absolutely terrible, uh, you know, airway just full of all kinds of, you know, uh, emesis and stuff like that, it might make more sense to do an ET sure. tube. I'm not saying, yeah. you know, an ET tube needs to go away by any means at all. And I do believe that, um, that a patient, you know, before we call them, we have to do everything that we need to do for the patient possible. So, mm -hmm. you know, placing an ET tube later on, as long as, you know, we're, you know, maybe not. This. We're not sacrificing care or anything like that. I, I think it's a good plan to still go to, like yeah. exercise all your tools. But I think the the evidence kind of shows that an SGA is is really good to put in first for most patients. I totally agree, and it really comes down to the. I get it. We're getting we're losing our tubes and and all that kind of thing. But I mean, yeah. losing tubes is more of an ego thing than it is patient care thing. And so I think that's right. something that we need to really kind of understand is that. The ET tube is great. It's a sexy tool. It's awesome. We love using it. We love having it in our repertoire. But yeah. is it great for all patients, in particular this type of arrest patient? I, I, I got to say no. And mm -hmm. um, Anytime that you're yeah. stopping CPR, and we've all been on that patient. We've all seen that patient. The, somebody has, you know, the lead medic has taken three, four, five attempts at, a, at an ET tube mm -hmm. when it's like, man, you really could have just instead of wasting a minute, half, two minutes, you could have just shoved an SGA in and been yeah. good. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And we could probably start to see that evidence pretty quick here, right? Because we're going to talk about SBO2 and using that to determine perfusion as well as end title. Yeah. And, uh, and we can start seeing these studies between, um, between ET tube use and an SGA use and the time it takes to do it because that's really the key here. If, if, if cardio, cardiac perfusion is key, and uh and we're stopping for 36 like 30 seconds to a minute you know minimum minimum 30 seconds to a minute to intubate yeah um, that's that's a lot of time uh, for that uh, for that brain to be perfused or to be non-perfused right so right um, definitely something to look at cool um so that being said let's go into i don't see any questions based on that and bvm with high flow two good everything's they're talking about training with an end title seal or with a, um, and now you got me doing it uh, with an ET tube. Um, and so Jennifer is saying, we intubate all with video also during CPR. That's a good, uh, that's a good question is do yeah. you guys use um, video intubation or. Yeah, we've got a Vioscope and I think it's, it's an unsung hero. Everybody talks mm -hmm. about the Kings and the C-Max and stuff like that. Um, I think the Vitascope is one of those like kind of lesser known ones that has some really good things to it. Um, it actually connects to our, our laptops. Um, oh, cool. we use our laptop as the video. Crazy. So, 
Yeah. So instead of having a small little tiny four inch screen or something like that, yeah, I get a full size 19 inch screen of the patient. That's pretty cool. Uh, it plugs in and it comes up automatically within about five seconds or less. Uh, it automatically allows us to record and take pictures. Uh, and so it gets attached to the report. Yeah. Um, I can also do playback when I get to the hospital to show, you know, the RT or the doc. Brilliant. Um, yeah, it's, it's super cool. And, uh, the thing I like about it and others don't like about it, uh, is you can't use it like a King or anything like that. It's a channeled one. So okay. it's got a super sharp, sharp, sharp angle to it, yeah. which is awesome for anterior airways. Yeah, but because it's got such a sharp angle to it, you'll you'll never actually get direct visualization of the airway. Um, right. So anybody that I've heard that's complained about it is usually trying to use it like a traditional video laryngoscope. Gotcha. Yeah, and they're trying to place the tube with a stylet, mm-hmm. whereas this has a channel inside that you can use. I believe it's a six o to an eight o size tube, so yeah. pretty good range in there. You put it, you lube it up, put it in the channel. And you basically push it forward until you see just the tip of it. Mm-hmm. And then when you push it in, because it's got such a steep angle to it, it pretty much grabs the vollacula. There's, huh. I've never had it not grab a vollacula. And it yeah. just pops it wide open. And you can just slowly push it and manipulate as you're pushing the tube through. And it works super well. Um, I think my only complaint is just in a super uh, you know, vomit-filled airway. But that's the complaint for every video laryngoscope. Well, yes, and are you guys, are you familiar with the um, um, oh my gosh the Ducanto catheter? Yes. Yeah. So that that combined with video makes a lot of perfect sense. And even before yeah. that, what I would do, and I got told this by an old school mech, is just if he has issues with um, if he has issues with a like a filled airway and he doesn't have a Ducanto catheter, he takes an OG, hooks it up to suction or suction, just puts it right down the esophagus during intubation, right? And it, and that way you don't ever have to worry about that. But I agree. I've had that issue where uh, I've had a vomit filled because we, we use the co-pilot, which is very similar to what you're using except okay. for a small screen. And it doesn't have the inner, the inner chain or the capability of going to our report and everything, which would have been awesome, um, yeah. especially in a critical care setting that we're using it in. But that being said, um, the, the kind of where was I going with? Oh, so when it comes to that kind of idea, I've oh yeah, there's definitely anything in that airway is going to fill that camera and you're screwed, right? So you're mm-hmm. either going direct visual visualization with a tool that's not designed for that, or you're going to have to clean that camera off. But yeah, if you just stick yeah. an OG down there into the esophagus or decanter catheter, uh, you're done, right? And you yeah. have a clear view. You don't have to worry about getting cleaned up. And on the OG line, another option that we can do too, if you don't have the Duke or the the OG, is you can intubate the stomach. And yeah. I, I don't. This is like a super old. Like we're talking about old school. This is a super old school way to do it. Uh, pop the adapter off once you go in, and let's say you accidentally tube the stomach. Uh, leave it in. Don't inflate it. Like de- deflate it. Right. Yeah. Then you hook it straight up to suction, and the tube will. Especially if you've yeah. got one of those really flexible ends to your. Uh, uh, your suction tubing itself, mm-hmm. it'll just prop right over top of it. And now you've got a whole, you know, seven millimeters big that's able to suction all that stuff out. Yep, definitely. That's a good way to go too. Yep. And there you solved your aspiration problem right there. Yep. It was awesome. And uh, so the there was one, May is asking, what device is the one that allows recording, the one that you were talking about that you guys use? Oh, yeah, it's a Vitascope. Vitascope. Okay. Vitascope. Make sure that we get that to her so that way she can check. Yeah. She's with and, uh, 
I'm not sponsored by them or anything. Like this is not, this is just something that we use that I like. Yeah. Same with us. Uh, Yeah. We, uh, we use the co-pilot at work, but it's not something that we, uh, we endorse or anything like that. But um, yeah. So they could definitely check it out. Um, I'm looking up how to spell it. So it, Let's see. Video learn just go find us. She already got it. She's already checking out. Found it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. She's on it. Uh, perfect. So that's that's airway. I think that's a really good discussion. I think everyone's kind of talking about debating and stuff like that. I think yeah, really when it comes down to it, the biggest problem between the reason we're going SGA as opposed to intubation with these is because we have to stop uh, to intubate. And I think the reason is because we haven't. Not everyone's using video. And I think we might, after we get more proficient with video laryngoscopes, right. limiting the stopping time during intubation, uh, or sorry, during CPR, maybe we'll start seeing that shift back to intubation because really and truly, uh, SGAs are great for us because they're fast, they're easy, you don't have to stop. If video laryngoscopes get to the point where we're not stopping at all, we're literally viewing, don't have to stop CPR, boom, and you're done then we might see that shift back there again. Just because we're going to SGAs now, it's because it's better for the patient at this point, given the evidence. Mm-hmm. But video might shift us back there again once we start getting proficient with it, once we start seeing that mainstream, then we might see video go back that way. Which, um, And truth be told, when you get to the hospital, I can tell you right now, the first thing that a resident or a physician is going to do is probably going to talk about pulling that SGA and putting an anti or a ET yeah. tube in. Uh, but that's their thing. That's not us. And we're, we're, again, we're still looking at what's best for the patient and what's best for the patient right now is an SGA until we get more proficient with intubation and speed, right. which is absolutely. Hey, also uh, on that note, a uh, couple of things. Do you guys use peep valves? And if you do, do you use them in cardiac arrest? Mm, that's a good question. We do not, yeah. uh, but we're hooking up to a vent immediately so mm-hmm. i might not be the best person to ask maybe there's someone that's watching yeah. right now that might be able to answer that better um because yeah we go straight to a uh, we go we hook up our vent almost immediately after we intubate okay so i don't I think the argument against peep would be again the same argument we were talking about earlier that mm-hmm. increased you know interthoracic pressure yeah so i don't know i was just curious on that and then also uh what about itds have you heard about or seen itds before no or rescue pods no, nope. no. Nope. So, Talk to us. Uh, all it does is basically it doesn't allow, like while you're doing compressions on the patient, it doesn't allow air to go into the lungs, right? Uh, once you've got your advanced airway in place, it doesn't yeah. allow that kind of air exchange in. And it only allows um, the air exchange to happen while you're doing the breath itself. Okay. And so like while you're breathing, it obviously allows the air in and it allows the exchange. And then when you're not breathing for the patient, basically what it does is it allows the the chest to kind of create that negative pressure that we were just talking about beforehand. Yeah. And that negative pressure again, increases coronary perfusion. So right. kind, of, kind of another interesting uh, device that's kind of newer to the market that I yeah. think may end up taking the world by storm eventually. Totally. I totally agree. Uh, it is, it's funny where we, Every time we see an innovation in resuscitation, we immediately see something that's, you know, joining the market, right? And right. even when heads up CPR, which we'll talk about in a few minutes here, yeah, there was a device at EMS World that was, it was basically a, a formed pillow for heads up CPR. 
Oh, is it that uh, Eligard or whatever? Maybe. I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately. Okay. But I remember seeing it like, well, that one didn't take very long. <laughs> yeah, and, right. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was kind of like those moments. But like, people are paying attention to evidence. When they pay attention to evidence, it's amazing how quickly something pops up and says, we've got right. a product for that, too. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, what about um, – there's a lot of people that have actually used Rescue Pods and they're saying – or the Rescue Pods and they're saying they love them. Oh, good. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What about uh, thing that I'm going to be trying to get my department to go look at yeah, a little bit closer? Yeah, totally. Let's talk about um, the circulation side of things. And so we've talked about the airway. Yeah. We talked about passive oxygenation um, and using kind of either nasal cannula or, in your case, a non-rebreather over the yeah. face during those first four minutes. And so let's let's get into the actual circulation side of things uh, with this resuscitation. What are you guys are you guys doing? Uh, mechanical CPR? Are you guys doing, you know, uh, pit crew CPR? What are you guys doing as far as your resuscitation techniques down south? Yeah. So uh, me personally, every day uh, that I get on shift, we actually have a, a little chart and I assign roles before we even, you know, go on our very first call. Um, so yeah, the pit crew thing is, is I mean, it makes sense. You're pre-planning yeah. um, everything that you're going to do before you go and do it. It, cool. just, it just makes sense. Um, and then, uh, what was the other question you asked? Uh, I was asking, are you guys using oh, mechanical? mechanical? Yeah. 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 So we did go to the Lucas device mm -hmm. and, um, and our next door neighbors have the, the, was it Zoll auto pulse? The pulse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're both really cool. And I know that there's been a lot of controversy about, well, they don't increase any, you know, uh, cardiac arrest outcomes and stuff like that. I got to say personally and anecdotally, I think it's fantastic because we're just getting an extra set of hands basically yeah. as soon as it's on. Now it's just so much easier for me to be able to stand back, keep that 50,000 foot view and not have to get involved so that I can continue to run the core like a nice choreographed, you know, orchestra mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, having to now, you know, get down and get dirty and get in and do things myself. Yeah. So, I'm a fan of them. Are you guys using them at all? We are not right now. We have some services that are using them. In okay. Uh, us in particular, we should be. I mean, really when it comes down to it, when we have an arrest in the plane, uh, it's it's impossible to do a re really good CPR uh, wow. or sorry, really good code. And, and it's just simply because there's just no room. There's only two of us and, and it just becomes kind of a mess. Now, when it comes to a Lucas, we wouldn't be able to fit a Lucas where our stretcher is particularly. It just wouldn't fit with the curve of the plane. Um, but the auto pulse, the auto pulse would make a lot of sense, right? So in our situation, we try really, really hard not to let people arrest on the plane. <laughs> like we're, we're trying really hard to not do that. Like for my, if you guys don't know where, how I work, we usually work from either ER to ER for uh, my service or we'll go ICU to ICU. We do intra-facility transfers of high acuity patients. And mm -hmm. so our goal is to stabilize them enough prior to leaving that we don't run into that issue. But if we were to run into that issue, because obviously we can't avoid it every time, that's a big concern for us is that right. we, um, we're going to have a lot, we're, we have a very difficult time actually running a code in there uh, with just a two man team having an auto pulse to do that and just to manage that would just open up every opportunity that we need. And so oh, yeah. as far as the evidence goes, and that would go for guys that are working two man crews as well. Like you're lucky where you're working in a fire department where they're uh, an integrated fire department where you have all hands on deck and those types of calls. Yep. 
Uh, yeah, we get first people yeah. for a cardiac arrest. It's actually a little bit ridiculous. It's yeah. pretty cool. We're lucky. Yeah, super lucky. And I've I've worked with integrated fire departments that have done that. And it's just like it just makes it so much easier, right? And mm-hmm. and working in that team. But if you're on your own, if you're a two man crew like myself, or even on a ground ambulance, then you're you're more than fifteen minutes away. Uh, I I assume that the evidence will show that these will increase um, resuscitation percentages over time. Maybe not right now, but we've got to remember that these things are only two, three years old. Um, and so I think over time with other combinations, we'll find that we'll, we'll see them improve um, yeah. cardiac arrest survival rates. Right. So yeah. yeah. One thing I do want to pop on the, the Lucas, if any of you guys are using the Lucas device, make dang sure you put the neck strap on. Yeah. Um, I see all the time people put the uh, the Lucas on, they forget the neck strap and it basically, it starts to walk down the chest because our chest, you know, kind of, it's like an angle like this when yeah. you're doing compressions. And so when it's compressing at this angle, it just continues to walk down the chest. The neck strap isn't for convenience's sake, it's to keep it in the correct place. Yeah. So make sure that, that you're using the neck strap if you're using it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Last thing you need is yeah. that thing to be compressed in the wrong area, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Broken <laughs> typhoid processes. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so that's kind of what we've, as far as mechanical CPR, I think that the Lucas and the Autopulse are going to be mainstream eventually. It just makes too much sense to not. Um, but let's say that you didn't have that. And let's say that we are trying to determine if we have, we, let's say we have a, a five-man crew or six-man crew like yourself, mm-hmm. and you didn't have the autopulse. What are two things that we can do in order to make sure that we have good output uh, from our CPR? Yeah, super good question. I think the unsung hero that we always forget about, everybody talks about Entitled a lot, we always forget about a pulse ox. Mm. I, I think that... Pulse ox is, everybody is always like, well, they're dead. They, I mean, who cares if we can tell how much oxygen they're getting? Yeah, but the pleth is a fantastic waveform that actually shows if you're getting good circulation. Yeah. And also, it shows your, your compression rate. It shows your compression rate really well. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the pulse ox is an unsung hero there. And then, uh, like we also just mentioned, the end tidal CO2, I think, is, is a rock star in, in CPR. Yeah, and it's I, I like to talk about end title. I'm trying to really push end title, obviously. If you guys yeah. see me try and get you guys onto our end title class. Um, but I talk it talked about it in mostly a, a respiratory standpoint, but as far as a perfusion standpoint, it's it's awesome. And it tells us a lot about how cardiac perfusion is going. And in particular, when it comes to end title, it actually is a very good indicator of uh, increases chance of ROS because we have a an end title above 20, or actually the evidence was saying above 16, we actually have a much, much better chance of resuscitation and ROS than we do with anything below 16. And it also tells us how good our CPR is because if we, let's say we're using Pitman CPR and we have a guy that's on there and he's doing compressions, he's just going hard on that chest and let's say the end title is 22 18 something along those lines when he starts and then you know you realize he's been going on the chest for quite some time and you're like oh he must be getting tired and you look at your end title and it's 12 you know that that trend is in the bat in a wrong direction it's probably because right. of the compression that's uh, that's going on so that's some, another thing as the as a team lead in a in a cardiac arrest you can use the end title to really determine how fatigued your team is at cpr if you're not using the lucas or if you're not using the uh the autopulse so yeah i, I think that's a really good 
piece as a leader to be like, okay, how's my team doing? And that's going to help. Right. So I like yeah, it a lot. And I think that it doesn't get enough. It doesn't get enough um, recognition, especially in situations like this. Right. Um, and it's not talked about enough. And, it isn't. Yeah. 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 And if anybody's wondering why we're we're kind of using entitled CO2 as kind of a goal for being able to judge if we're getting good perfusion compressions and stuff, yeah. if that blood is static, it means that all that CO2 and acid isn't, you know, it's it's not leaving the body. Yeah. And so by seeing the entitled CO2 up above that, uh, I think our service says above 15, which equates to your 16 or above. Uh, if it's not that above 15, then we're not moving that blood enough and getting good enough perfusion to be able to get some of that stuff out. And so it's just a good indicator of whether or not we're actually getting good compressions. Yeah. Deep enough compressions and rapid enough compressions. Yeah. And it's also been used for termination of CPR as well. Yeah. And because uh, we're just seeing, because just because you have a low end title doesn't mean that you're doing a poor job resuscitating this patient. It could be right. just the pathology that's actually creating a low perfusion or a low end title. Uh, for example, something like, I don't know, an aortic dissection where you basically have huge hypovolemia, uh, mm-hmm. you're going to have a low end title because it's, you just have no perfusion or no output. Um, no. So that's something to take into consideration. nothing to exchange, yeah. Exactly, right? So just because you have a low end title, that's why a trend is more useful to you than the, um, than the end title itself, is seeing right. where that trend is when it comes to team lead and checking to make sure your CPR is effective. Look at it at the beginning. If it's 20, awesome. If you start to see that decline, it's probably because of fatigue. That trend, yep. But if you start at CPR, and you have an end title of 12, and then it's just keeps declining from there, even with good CPR, you're probably looking at pathology that's causing that. Uh, right. so it could or somebody that's just been down too long. Because if yeah. somebody's been down too long, then eventually your cells just, they don't respirate. You lose, okay. um, you lose cellular respiration. Mm-hmm. And so if they're not exchanging CO2 and oxygen and everything, then they're dead and you have yeah. cell death. And so... Yeah. That's that's kind of that for I don't know about your uh, your protocols or standard of practice, but for us, if somebody's end tidal CO two is below ten after twenty minutes, and we have no other reversible causes that we can think of, yeah, that's that's a termination of resuscitation, right? Well, there. it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you're it, that's exactly right. Is that if you have you know twenty minutes of CPR with a end tidal below ten, like you know that there's no cellular respiration going on whatsoever, right? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. and the chances of resuscitation on that are so low if any, right? So it makes right. sense. With the exception of somebody like hypothermia. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Again, because we have to just keep track of, you know, our reversible causes. Somebody yeah. that's hypothermic, super, I mean, like major stasis with their blood flow, you know, I mm. mean, they're just so clamped down. They're yeah. not going to be exchanging things very well. They're going to probably have a very low end title. So we do need to continue those guys, but generally for a standard cardiac etiology, yeah, it, it's done. Yeah. Definitely. Let's look and see if we have some questions here. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the end or sorry, the SPO2, let's go back there for a sec. Yeah. Um, so they're talking about, is there enough? So when you use this SPO2, are you using a finger probe in order to determine the mm-hmm. wave? Okay. You are. Okay. And you're yeah. seeing good results with that. Yeah, it, it seems yeah. to work. Um, I mean, their pulse ox, we're not, we're not gauging their pulse ox as anything that's going to be 
you know, valuable because unfortunately they're, they're in cardiac arrest and they're not exchanging oxygen super yeah. well. So I'm not like trying for a 95% or above, you know, pulse ox level. Instead, I'm just looking at the, the pleth and seeing if we actually have. Yeah. Uh, and if anybody doesn't know what pleth is, pleth is the actual waveform for waveform, uh, a waveform SpO2. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it just, it, it gives a good idea of the, the compressions. And I know that sometimes some monitors, um, when you're doing compressions, the, the actual like EKG part of the monitor will reflect those compressions, mm-hmm. but we've also seen that sometimes they don't. Yeah. So it's, it's another option. That's all it is. It's just another option. It kind of helps totally. keep a gauge. Yeah, exactly. There was a question just in the comments. So I just wanted to address that. Yeah. Um, so what waves would be beneficial to look for is another question that's coming up. I think he's well, talking about SPO2, but you just answered that. So okay, we're good there. I don't see any other. Uh, Daniel, if you're looking at them, um, you're not going to see the, the dichrotic notch that you normally would um, because you don't have the difference in uh, the atria and the ventricles pumping. So you see a dichrotic notch, meaning kind of it comes up and then you'll see a bump. So you'll just look for that kind of standard sine wave shape of an SPO2. Yeah. I hope cool. that's answering what you're looking for. Yeah, I think, I think that's what he's looking for. So good. Okay, well, I think uh, I don't see any other questions. There is there anything else that we want to bring up in this particular talk about cardiac arrest and resuscitation? I think we'll, you, we'll leave ROSC for uh, another class because we could probably talk another hour about ROSC. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so maybe we'll leave that for later. I, this is kind of an introduction to class that I'm doing later. So Sunday, I'm doing a respiratory class. We're basically going through all the respiratory emergencies. Uh, Wednesday, I'm going through um, ACLS kind of prep kind of idea for members. Tomorrow's for members as well. And then the week after that, I am doing a big resuscitation class and Ross class. And so maybe we'll do a nice case study that ties into that. Uh, Kevin's going to get set up for a a case that's going to be on on hyper K. So I'm giving away the answer to it, but, uh, yeah. hyper K arrest and stuff, but well, I think yeah, that'll it's be, a, be really a dialysis cardiac arrest. Yeah. yeah. That'll be a really good one. Cause it kind of ties in with the whole theme going on this month, which is resuscitation and, mm-hmm. and ROSC. And so that's, that's going to be pretty awesome. So hopefully, yeah. uh, you guys found this really interesting as far as the, the mug goes, I'm just going to pick someone from the comments that was really involved. I'm going to go with, um, Joshua Mork, you were helping people in the comments. So you win, a Master Medics coffee mug for our first ever morning show. Huh, that's what we should call it. Um, and so Joshua, shoot us a message and I will get the details of how you can get your mug and get it shipped to you. And uh, thanks for everyone that joined us. I really appreciate it. If you have comments, feel free to put it in the comments. This class stays up on Facebook. It'll also become a part of our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. So feel free to join that. And, uh, and then ask questions there. We're always kind of monitoring things and helping people out and asking questions. And resuscitation is a big part of what we do. And so I'm, I'm definitely interested in improving you guys in this thing. So let's, uh, let's, let's really push for better outcomes for resuscitation and, yeah. uh, and make this month a really cool month that you learn a lot of stuff about getting, keeping people alive and bringing them back. So that is, uh, that's that for today. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Thanks again for coming. Thanks, Kevin, for uh, for joining us this morning. Hopefully it wasn't too early for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so right. we'll, uh, well, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, awesome, guys. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you later this week.